0: In my experiences, I've always kind of felt like I needed to change the way that things were doing, bring new ideas, break the traditional mold. Sometimes that's a tough situation to be in because you're doing things. People think you're doing things for your own personal good or your reputation when you're actually trying to do things in a more efficient, more productive manner for the company. The learnings from those situations was that you take in your surroundings, you try to understand how things are being done, and then you try to figure out new ways to do things. That's
1: what I feel like I've done over the past decade plus. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you enjoy the pod, the best way to show your support is by leaving a review. Thanks. Dude, how are you? I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, thank you for inviting. Are you inviting. stoked? I am. I'm super stoked. Got to talk to your wife. Got to talk to the whole team. What are you doing out here this week? Visiting with the team. Okay. Yeah. How much of the team's out here? Probably a dozen or so. Okay.
0: Yeah. Some people flew up from Southern California.
1: Yeah. So, is it weird being back here?
0: I haven't really got to see much
1: of the city yet.
0: Yeah. You know, I always get disoriented here. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I mean, it's not linear like New yeah. York or downtown Austin. It, you know, you guys have sideways and.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like the streets aren't numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, in Union Square, it said an eight minute walk, but I know that
1: that's where you came from.
0: You end up encountering all kinds of different situations in San Francisco, so I took an Uber. yeah, smart What was funny was we were at rue last night. uh-huh. Rue's good. yeah, our SVP of partners was he drove me back to the hotel, and we actually came down this street we were literally on the street, on this corner. And I said, San Francisco is so interesting. Like it looks so he's like, there's, it's so different in many, in different places. Yeah. I'm rooting for San Francisco
1: though. Are you? I wanted to come back. Doesn't it behoove you for selfish reasons? Let's just say if Austin or somewhere in Texas became the Mecca, wouldn't that be good for you? Like, why are you rooting for it? It was the center of so much innovation, you know? And I feel like
0: it was, I mean, you built your career here. I think a lot of people that I know in the valley or or San Francisco built their career. Austin has its, certainly has its vibe. It's changed. I mean, I grew up there. It's different though. I was selling security systems at a certain time in my life. And I remember I went to this guy's house. It was on the UT golf course. So the house was easily seven figures. And my pitch at the time was you get a security system, you save on your home warranty and your mortgage, you save, you know, whatever it is, a dollar a day. So it's 30 bucks a day. And the guy goes, I don't have a mortgage. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I bought this in cash. And it turns out the guy moved from California from San Francisco and that was in 2010. And so since then, I think about 185 people net have moved to Austin per day. And so people, you know, during the pandemic or after the pandemic have said, what do you feel about all these Californians moving? And I'm like, they've been moving here since 2010, 2009.
1: Yeah. So during COVID, I was living in Austin two Februaries in a row, mm-hmm. which was Worst time. And by the way, in the last three Februaries, it's been the same storm that keeps hitting Austin.
0: January 15th to mid-February is the worst weather in Austin. No joke.
1: I wonder, like, the question around, hey, how do you feel about all these people from out of town coming in, a lot of tech people? One of the things that I loved about Austin that I've always said, are you in Austin?
0: Yeah. In proper. Austin proper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, proper. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Um Is that it's this... Very eclectic, progressive, liberal town mm-hmm. in a very conservative state. Yep. And so you kind of get the best of all worlds. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. like people are allowed to have the traditional things that you'd associate with one side. And then they're also allowed to have the things that you'd associate with the other side. Yeah. And so it's this really nice mix. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. whereas I think we lost the script a little bit here because we're in a bigger left kind of box. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the way that that showed up for me in the kind of work setting was, it was so nice going to dinners and really never overhearing conversations to my left and right about tech. Yeah. And you forget how nice it is when you're not here to just have that reprieve mm-hmm. from like, all we do is live and breathe what we do. Right. I was out to dinner with the GitHub CEO at some restaurant in Palo Alto, Tamarind, and I was honestly uncomfortable having a conversation with him because the tables were not very far away from each other. Yep. And I knew the people to my left and right were talking about tech and venture and all these things. And I'm like, God, I can't get away for a second. Mm -hmm. I can't even have a normal conversation over a meal. Yeah. And on your trajectory with this podcast, everybody's
0: going to know who you are. You're going to be a celebrity. You can't even go to lunch with you.
1: Thank God our YouTube views are low. I should have kept it just audio that I could just be the anonymous voice. I mean,
0: as soon as people hear your voice, though, it's like in a restaurant, you're
1: like, is that Jubin? (laughs) Um, When you were selling the security system, it was a physical box, right? No, it was, I had the demo box. I carried
0: like this luggage type thing around with me and I'd prop it open and I'd show people the keypad and did this whole demo. You know, it was product demo with discovery before it was a thing, you know? It's like
1: product-led growth. Is that what you call it? Yeah, that's right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that was an interesting job. Actually, it wasn't my first sales job, but that was an interesting role. Like, when you don't know any better, you don't know any better, right? It's just, I want to sell. I want to make money.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but you probably were not like the rest of the people selling security in that job. No. And I say that because you're not like the rest of the sales leaders that I talk to. You're not like the rest of most of the people in our industry. How so? And, well, one, you're very soft-spoken. And I mean that nicely. I don't actually, I don't know if I need to caveat that, but you're very soft-spoken. Two, I find you very different from me in the sense that I probably fit more of a similar mold of I speak and then I think rather than thinking and then speaking. And it struck me how thoughtful you were the first time we spoke was a reference for Liam, yep. who's on my team. And the first five minutes was me asking you questions. Then the next 10 minutes was you asking me more questions about the role. Then the next 10 minutes was us just saying how lucky I am to have Liam on the team. Right. But I remember the interaction being very Socratic from your perspective, and I was doing the reference. And I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> that was our first interaction. Then I saw you in Vegas for reInvent. No, coffee. We met for coffee at House Tooth. Oh, that's right.
0: Yeah, In Austin. That's when I found out you were living in a suitcase. That's when you found out I, I was living in a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> was I living in Austin, or was I just traveling? You were living for a certain
1: period of time. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. That would freak you out, right? What, it, the, like, living, like you can't do that. Now you have three kids.
0: Yeah. Three kids, a wife, you know, <laughs> I do wish maybe 15 years ago we did that,
1: but. I was like rolling around the country with my backpack and a carry on and my microphones in my backpack. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> living the life. I mean, it was COVID. What was I going to do? Yeah. So then Vegas. Then Vegas. Yeah. And I remember you asking me, why don't you look at me when we talk? And I was like, is he trying to fight me? No, no, no.
0: It was a different version of that. Okay, what'd you say? I said, you're the first person that I've ever met that it's how people describe talking to me. Yeah. Because your eyes are everywhere Uh while I'm talking to you. (laughs) And everybody has always always given me that feedback, especially my wife. But I got to experience that firsthand with you. And I felt it so relatable because the way that you described it was it's a movie that you can't turn off. You're always constantly taking in your surroundings, what's going on around you, what are people wearing. You know, I can be in a restaurant with in a work setting and I can know the people behind me, they're on a date. The people behind you, elderly couple. The people to the right, they have a teenage son with them. I take those signals in, what people are wearing, jewelry, shoes, facial expressions. It's just a constant intake that you can't turn off. Is it subconscious? It is very much so. Yeah. We just mentioned when you met me for coffee in Austin. Yeah. I remember the whole time you were on your elbows, leaning forward, feet back, knees forward. You're wearing a gray sweatshirt. Yeah. I could feel your energy, right? The way that you were speaking. Like, I remember that vividly. You probably don't remember what
1: you're wearing. I do. No way. That's like savant-like. And if you could turn that off, would you? I think it is a... Because isn't it exhausting? It is and you only have so much space for so many things to hold in your head.
0: Yeah. As I've grown, I've become more intentional with it. I have figured out how to use it to my advantage. My older son is a lot like me from a professional setting. I'm using my learnings to help hopefully accelerate him understanding himself. I don't think I would turn it off because I think it makes me who I am. It allows me to assess situations that I wouldn't normally assess. I figure out people pretty quickly. I figure out situations pretty quickly. I feel like I understand the answer. And then it's about validating that answer through questions, through other people, through, you know, other data
1: points. And the eye contact thing, I asked Liam about this when we were at dinner just the other day, because I could feel myself doing the eye contact thing with him. I literally look at everything else. Like when I was a kid, my family used to make fun of me because when we'd be at dinner my jaw would be just wide open and I'd just be staring at another table because I'm just so fascinated with what's going on and I didn't have the ability to even somewhat compose myself to pretend like I wasn't. And so my eyes dart around when I'm talking to someone. It's actually really, it's really rude. I wish I wasn't that way. I can't help it. And I said, does Javier do this? And he said, no, he'll more stare at one spot kind of right next to you.
0: like staring at your coffee mug right now. Yeah.
1: But you're doing that to focus in on everything else that's kind of going on around you. I do it to clarify my thoughts to
0: think when I'm looking at you, it's really difficult for me to I feel the same way because when I'm staring at you, I'm taking in all of your facial expressions, the way that you're reacting. When I get onto that train of thought, I can't process my own thoughts.
1: Right. So let me ask you this. Are you more effective at communicating whether that's listening or speaking when you're on the phone or when you're on a Zoom? On a Zoom. Something about Zoom, about being on video,
0: either when I'm talking to one person or when I'm talking to a group of 300 people on, on all hands, I typically pick out one or two people and I just I act like I'm talking to them on a video. That makes sense. And I can see them nodding and I'm looking for a validation of the things that I'm saying. I don't know why it's easier
1: on video, but yeah, I don't know. For me, I can't really focus even on Zoom, my best focus happens over the phone because there's no pressure or expectation of any, I'm just listening. Yeah. Zoom's the worst for me. In-person second, phone is the best because there's no social expectation and I can think when I'm not staring. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. That's why, to your point, when I'm not looking at you, like right now, I'm thinking mm-hmm. It's hard for me to process when I'm locked in like that. Yeah. I don't know how to
0: explain it. One of the most difficult things, and I think this is really where I realized that I did a uh, customer testimonial for a vendor one time and they brought in their cameras and lights and they said, you have to maintain eye contact with the camera while you're speaking. And I didn't have a script. So I had to tell them my true thought. They were asking me questions as in an interview style and I was staring at the camera and we probably did. 40 takes. Like, I could not keep eye contact. <laughs> you know, I had the total new appreciation for acting at that point. It wasn't acting, it was me talking to the camera, but I mean, it was tough to maintain eye contact. But
1: let me ask you this Don't you think that part of the problem is if I could turn the movie off, I don't actually think I'd have a problem keeping eye contact. I think that the Problem with keeping eye contact comes from the fact that I feel like I need to be having all of these other observations and thoughts and things going on in my head because I can't help it. Like it's just happening Mm -hmm. almost like it's an outer body experience. If that makes sense. Like it's like I'm watching myself talk. I can't explain it any other way.
0: Yeah. And I don't know about you, but at times you have to regulate your own emotions because when you feel yourself talking like I am now in a room with a microphone in front of me, you could almost go into like a third party assessing your own talk track and body language. And then you start to get, you know, even more self-conscious and then you get off track. It was like in sports, you're playing a game, but you can like, you're almost acting out or talking in your head about what's happening. Yeah. It can mess with you a little bit, you know? So you have to regulate that. You have to, I don't know. It's been a
1: process. I find the movie in my head to be, Very tiresome. I never realized that most people don't have that. I never realized that it's like this hyperactivity that just doesn't stop. The eyes thing is just more ways for me to like keep consuming information that's like feeding my like hyperactive brain. It's almost like I have to be doing more than one thing than just talking to someone.
0: Do you feel like it's your superpower?
1: It's like probably like one of those like worst thing, best thing type things, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, I think it pushes me. I think I have a bias for action because of it, if that makes sense. And I think I have just a lot of ideas on things. Right. As a result of it, you know, I'm very impatient. Which I don't... You don't strike me as impatient. I'm very. You are? Okay. Very. Okay. So, you just have a calm demeanor.
0: Impatient and competitive. Very. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is that you... You have so much going on that you just have an impatience and you have to go put it into action. Is that what you're saying?
1: It is what I'm saying.
0: For me, it's a little different. I think it's processing the situation, processing whatever's happening, and then trying to decipher what to do next, how to action it, how to respond. And in a social dynamic, I can come off soft-spoken, mm. quietest in the room, but I'm, I am assessing, I'm listening. And... Over the last few years, as my responsibility has grown and more people I interact with, I have to be very intentional with my expressions, with how I express my thoughts. I call myself a social introvert. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a thing, mm-hmm. because I am very social. I'm not. I, when I read introvert uh, descriptions, that's not me. I don't. I don't like to be at home. It does. I don't recharge or being away from people. I actually get charged up being around people. Mm-hmm. So the social dynamic is different than a typical introvert, but the introvert tendencies are, you know, a lot going on in the head, not a lot of coming out of the mouth or facial expressions.
1: Can you just sit behind a computer and do focused work for hours? No, I can't for the life of me. And that's where I get tripped up, which is that not only is my brain restless, but my body is restless. Like my leg shakes. I can't help it no matter what. It's just like oozing out of me. And I don't mind the, like, physical aspect of it. You know, like, I feel like when I wake up, I work out because I have to get rid of some of the energy. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to, like, implode. On the mental thing, the problem that I run into is, like, last night. I'm laying in bed, and I'm thinking about this conversation. I'm thinking about the next conversation. I'm thinking about what I have to do on February 16th and February 28th. And the movie just plays out uncontrollably. Mm-hmm just do, 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 do. now am i like firing off slacks to people with like thoughts on like we need to think about this and this and this that were legit we do need to think about those things and probably do a few things around them yes so i do think there's something there that's like pushing us you know but also i was sitting there and my heart is beating out of my chest at like eleven thirty at night i'm like doing breathing exercises you know like all the things Oh my God! I we are too similar. I gotta relax.
0: <laughs> you know, are people listening to this going like these two are just weird?
1: <laughs> well, listen. I hope that other people who are listening to this that maybe feel this way know that it turns out there's other people that also think this. Because at first I thought everybody feels this way, mm-hmm. and then I realized, oh my God, I think I'm the only person that feels this way. Yeah. And then as I talk about it a little bit more, I realize everybody has some version of this. Yeah. Some version of living in the future. It's very rarely living in the past for me, but it's almost always living in the future.
0: Yeah. It creates the inability to be present. It creates kind of a form of anxiety and a need to be urgent with your actions. With you, it's at night. With me, it's actually, I crash at night. It's the morning. My mind after five in the morning, you know, the movie turns on and I'm in my subconscious, I'm thinking about meetings and work and I'll text my EA at 5.30 in the morning and I'll say, hey, did we get that meeting scheduled? And it's some random email that I got last Thursday that I archived that I I completely forgot about. But my subconscious remembers it, that it was an open task that I didn't complete. And where that comes from in my subconscious, I have no idea.
1: Do you think it's your superpower?
0: It's my superpower and it's also my Achilles heel, if I'm being honest. yeah, It allows me to interview, really well and assess talent. It allows me to read situations. It allows me to understand room dynamics and people of influence and responsibility. It understand it helps me understand my customers. My Achilles heel is I'm known for being hard to read. As we're talking right now, right? My facial expressions are probably pretty flat. I'm known to be pretty direct pretty quickly. And that's because I feel like I understand the situation. I understand the candidate, for example. It's my Achilles heel and I'm not as expressive. I think a lot of people like extroverts because how they're so expressive and flashy and they can, they're witty and can say things pretty quickly and they're fun to be around or that's not me. So I think there's certainly pros and cons to it. And I am learning as I'm growing how to use it.
1: One of the questions that you also asked me in Vegas that I am not kidding you, I probably spun around for a week and a half. I texted you. Yeah. <laughs> I texted you and I'm like, dude, what the f- was that question? Like it has, <laughs> it has spun me upside down. What's the question? Do you remember the question?
0: What is a common misconception of you?
1: Yeah. What is a common misconception of you? Did I ask you that question or did you only ask me that question?
0: We were talking about interview questions and asking questions that are kind of against the grain and I feel like that's my entire interview style is asking questions that get people to reveal things that are allowing me to assess them at a much faster pace. And I have a several dozen of them, but what is a common misconception is one that I always ask. And I asked that question because, and I told you about it because I I forgot what the topic was, but the reason I use it is because it allows me to let me back up a second. When I get into an interview, I ask people, when I, before I start my line of questioning, I let them know, I'm gonna ask you a line of questions. And when I do this, I'm not just listening to the words that you say, but how you say them, your body language, the priority of words that you use. Because when I first started interviewing people, I was doing that subconsciously, but I wasn't letting people know. And they were like, I interviewed with Javier and it was just rapid fire all over the place, context switching, and I don't know where it was going. So I found it to set the stage a little bit. So what is a common misconception of you? I'm looking for self-awareness because I think people that are self-aware know that they may be a little self-conscious about whatever the misconception is, and they actively, proactively try to address it. The most common one I hear is that I'm very nice. I hear that all the time in interviews. People think that I'm very nice and that I'm a pushover, but I'm actually not. When I believe in something, I will drive it to its end. But, you know, if someone is like, oh, that's the tough question. My common misconception is that people say that I smile a lot. I'm like, OK, there's not much substance behind that. There's not you haven't really thought about that. You either are not paying attention to what people are telling you or feedback that you're getting, because mm-hmm. any experienced professional has had leaders that have given them feedback or they've done 360s or they've heard feedback from people around them. So that's really what I'm assessing is. Is that top of mind? Are they thinking about those things? Because that is a leading indicator for me for coachability and the ability to be coached.
1: What's one of the favorite answers that you've ever had to that? On that question? On that question. Or any question. Are there any interviews that you've done that blew your socks away?
0: I think some of my favorite interviews that I do are ones in which we get to the point. I think you do this a little bit too with your podcast. You get people to the point to where they're revealing things and talking about things that they weren't expecting to talk about. And it's not like I'm looking for deep, dark family secrets. What I'm really looking for is how well do you know yourself? How well are you in tune with the areas of strength and the areas of opportunity and how to get better? I'm looking for intelligence. How well are you able to assess certain situations or assess what's happened in the past? I'm looking for ambition. What do they aspire to be? Do they have that inner drive? I used to call it the X factor when I first got into leadership. You know, you can always tell when you meet with somebody, you're like, okay, that person is, they want to become something. And so to reveal that I'm asking questions like, what's the most difficult feedback that you've ever received in your career? Who's your favorite leader that you've ever had and why? What is a common misconception about you? What is something that you've always struggled with? And I've just just accumulated these questions through hearing other people interview through podcasts that I've listened to through my own creation. And in doing that, I start to get these answers that start to reveal what type of person they are and what they care about. And I have a, on the top of my interview doc, it has strengths, areas of concern and unknown. And as I'm hearing someone talk and I'm watching their body language and I'm listening to the words that they jotting use, down bullet points. I'm jotting down like thoughts, like random thoughts. So it keeps me from being biased towards the candidate. I'm just jotting down the things that I'm, that's coming top of mind. And then when I'm done, either the areas of concern are really long and the strengths are short or the strengths are really short or long and areas of concern are short. And I'm like, okay, I like this candidate. They're good. So to answer your question, The candidates that I've really enjoyed speaking to are the ones that just really are in tune with what they're about. That tells me that they have so much potential. They have so much more in them. And if they come into my org or I get the chance to work with them, we can start to pull them up. We can start to develop them into much more.
1: Why do you think that those that have self awareness have so much potential?
0: I like to draw two circles one really small circle and fill it in with a marker, and then a really big circle and fill the very bottom of it with marker. One is a person that has learned a lot and experienced a lot, but there's no more room to grow. The circle's filled. The big circle has just as much experience and just as much that they've learned, but there's so much more in the circle for it to be filled in, to grow. So people with self-awareness, I think that they have a the term growth mindset is what people use a lot, but they feel like there's always something to learn. They haven't mastered it all. There's an ability to become much more. And I think those people are the ones that, I, in my opinion, can evolve. They can change. They can help lead others through change. They're easier to coach, I'll just say.
1: When did you realize that self awareness was a thing for you? Like, when did you start to find out that? You can have this outer body thing with Javier, evaluating Javier, not just in real time, which is crazy in itself, but just that you have this inner identity that can be molded and shaped. At what point did you realize that there is a thing there that if I understand it better, it's my call it shortcut to improvement? pretty recently, I would say, you know, recently in the
0: last six, seven years. When I think about my childhood and think about interactions with people at school or sports or cousins, it was always there. I just never, I never knew how to control it. I never knew what it was. And I think the professional setting has really kind of started to pull it out because now I'm in a more structured environment. I'm being asked to coach and mentor and lead other people I'm looking for certain traits and I think I've just spent time getting in tune with what makes the best people that I've ever worked for or with what makes them great. And just picking up on those
1: things. Have you always been a different type of cat? Like have you always felt a little bit not the same as most of the people in your peer groups? You know, I think
0: probably my younger years, I didn't feel that way. I feel like it was probably like college professional settings kind of out of my element. I was working with different types of people, people from all different kinds of backgrounds. That's kind of where I felt like I was, things started to change for me a little bit. And I don't know, and I still think about this. I don't know if it was me maturing. I don't know if it was my wife pulling more out of me. Yeah. (laughs) Or just the world evolving around. I don't know. I can't explain that.
1: I wonder if part of it is that if you always feel different, most of the time different is not perceived as great by yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Like you want to fit in. Like I remember when I was a kid, I always felt different and I always wanted to fit in. And so I wanted to change. I didn't want to be the person that I was. I wanted to be more like everybody else. And so I struggled with self-awareness because I didn't like the person that I was. You know what I mean? Like I resented that I was different. It started with my name and then it went down from there, you know? (laughs) And so I think when you don't embrace that different is good, I think it's really hard to be self-aware because you're not really embracing the person that you are. You really kind of want to be something else. Yeah. Does that make
0: sense? It does. It does. It's an interesting situation, right? Because, you know, in my role, you know, my team is 300 plus and I interact with some people daily Others, maybe twice a year in person, maybe once a year. And so the perceptions that get created or the idea of who I am, I think a lot of it sometimes is misunderstanding. And so I have to be very intentional and thoughtful with how I communicate, how I am transparent with the things that I want to get across to the team, whether it's in in written or through Zooms or on stage presence, those sort of things. And in doing so, hopefully they get a window into how I'm thinking about things, because to your point, it's only come to my attention over the last few years that I am a sales leader, but I don't view myself as much of a traditional sales leader, you know, thinking about things holistically. My current CEO says I'm the most long term thinking sales leader he's ever met. I was kind of offended by that when he said that, because, you know, we have to get deals done now. But. I think it's in my nature to think about things, how everything works together like an engine. And I always kind of come back to that term of making the engine productive and making the engine effective. And it's not sure I can go chase down half a million dollar deals all day long, but what else do we miss that are big levers that change the trajectory of our business? Mm -hmm. When you were growing
1: up, what was conversation like at the dinner table? We didn't really have conversations at the dinner table.
0: We were always on the go. Who's we? A younger sister, mom, dad. There was always sports. There was always practices. There was things of that nature. So it wasn't like a traditional dinner setting, I would say with our family.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? What do you mean you didn't have conversation?
0: Yeah, we, I mean, I think we, you know, how's your day going? How are things? How's school? Okay,
1: very topical.
0: Very topical. It wasn't really pulling into feelings or, and things of that nature.
1: Do you feel like you do that with your kids?
0: My natural setting is there. I think I've learned probably over the last years to really kind of be intentional with my questions and to just have conversation. When I think back on my childhood, I was very supported. I was happy. I felt like I did what I wanted. I also feel like I was in gifted and talented programs. I was passing with straight A's, but I never studied. In sports, you know, I was making teams, but I wasn't like putting in the off-season workouts. So I felt like my parents did their best to provide the childhood that they could. And I felt very supported. But there was topics that I didn't really talk about. To no fault of their own, I just learned as we went. So I feel like now as a father, my duty is to help give them insight into what's coming down the line and at least having conversations. I still remember very small things that my parents said growing up that like, I still think about. You know, I still remember... I think kids are listening Mm -hmm. and it's just about how do you take advantage of those opportunities. Can you tell me
1: when you bought your first home? (laughs) I think there's a story there. I don't actually know it, but I'm just curious.
0: When I bought my first home.
1: I was told that I should ask you the stretching that you had to do when you and your wife I think it was your first home. Maybe it was your second home. I don't know.
0: Both actually. Yeah. (laughs) It depends on who you talk to because I have two stories for two different houses. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So just to set the stage, Dealer's choice. Yeah. Just to set the stage. When I graduated college, first off, I didn't know I wanted to be in sales. I was all in on marketing. I didn't know sales was a career. I went to school to be a pharmacist because my mom was a pharmacist. I took one semester of biology and chemistry, honors biology and chemistry and I called crying home three months later. Like it was terrible. <laughs> I'm switching to business. So marketing's the degree I'm going to get into. I did a marketing internship at a company in Austin. Looked like fun. And then I started finding out there's the account directors that are making big six figure money. And then there's everybody else. I took a class in college with a professor that was a Johnson and Johnson horse shampoo salesman. And it was professional salesmanship. It was interviewing. And so I was, you know, 22 years old doing cold calls and objection handling and how to do interviews. And I just fell in love with sales. I just fell in love with like the art, the competitiveness of it. Did an industrial sales job there for a little bit. And then I moved back to Austin, got into selling security systems. And that was a journey in its own. You know, I got back to Austin, I was interviewing for Construction companies. I was interviewing for electrical companies. I was I interviewed with Dell just to take orders to for home computers. Didn't get that job. I was depressed. I was literally depressed. Were you married? I was not married or engaged. We were dating. Okay. At the time, you know, anybody that's been in Austin knows who what Kirby Lane is. Kirby Lane's like a breakfast place, and I was in Kirby Lane, really emotional with my parents. It was the first time in my life that I hadn't been successful. Like I'd gotten good grades. I had been in sports. I played baseball through four years. And I just couldn't get a job and it was tough. And her name was Adriana. I still remember she called me for a job at a home security company and got the job, got engaged. My fiance then wife now, she moved down to Austin with me. We lived with my parents for a month and we found a house and uh, she wanted to get an apartment. We had two dogs and I was like, there's no way we're getting an apartment. Cause I was already thinking about home equity and, you know, building up equity in the house. And I, you know, often, it was 2008. It was the middle of the recession, like the recession was starting. And I didn't know it. I was 23 years old and we got the house. They accepted our offer, but they said, you need a down payment. And I think it was like 32 days. We had no money. And the down payment was like 6,500 bucks, 6,500, 6,500 bucks. Uh-huh. So it was 3% of the, the whole, the total house. We just started saving everything that we could to put that down payment down. We got the house, no furniture. And so there we are. She was a social worker making equivalent to teacher salary money. I was selling security systems, going to being at home, and uh, I was in home design studios meeting with people. And we had a mortgage of, I think, 1,350, 1,400 bucks, somewhere around there. You know, my, and my paychecks were 900 to 1,800 bucks. So we were grinding there for a while. You know, what did that feel like? It felt like there was no other option, to be honest with you. Like we didn't feel pressure to make our mortgage. We felt like we could get ourselves to a place to be successful and a lot of sacrifices along the way. That's a much different story than our second house. Go ahead. What's the second second house? (laughs) The second house. So we had my son, Jacob, we were deciding to move to a new home because we needed more space. We wanted to have more kids. We wanted a better school district. And this is probably the story that you heard. And, you know, we find the house, we do everything. We get the paperwork. When you buy a house, they give you a whole pack of paperwork and it has all the fees and down payments and all that. And then it has the mortgage. And I saw the mortgage and there was a three in front of it. (laughs) And for anybody that's in New York or California, they're probably like, what are you talking about? But in Austin, that was a lot at the time. And I, almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> I was like, honey, we are, we're no longer eating dinner out. We're eating pizzas at home. We're we're not traveling. We're shutting it all down. We can't afford this, but we're going to do it. But I jumped into it feeling like not only would we figure out how to afford it now, but I felt like it was on me to be successful and continued on a trajectory that's going to put us in the position to afford it long-term. You know, that was 2015, six months before we got taken private, two years before I went to Mongo. So
1: Six months before who got taken private? SolarWinds. Yep, which is where you're working at the time. Yep.
0: And yeah, so I think things ended up working out, thankfully, fortunately. Uh, I think it was a bet on ourselves at the time.
1: Yeah. When I was growing up, my dad was in sales. He sold timeshares. He would always tell me that the best thing I could do for myself was put myself in debt. (laughs) Go buy a car that I can't afford. Meanwhile, he's putting himself in debt like going to the casinos. You know, (laughs) So different ways of putting yourself in debt, I guess. There's something to be said for when your back's against the wall. I think one of the things that, if I'm being honest, I get insecure about is I never want to lose that feeling Mm -hmm. of desperation. Yep especially as I rise through my career, but I also am desperate to get rid of that feeling of desperation. You know, like I don't want to feel like I have nothing when I have things, but I also love that chip on my shoulder because it pushes me, you know, and I always struggle with that balance. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing.
0: I mean, there's a saying that says the dying man wants one more day. The young man wants a thousand different things something similar to that saying is a constant reminder to try to stay present and grateful for what you have. Yeah. When you think about a lot of the successful tech entrepreneurs or people that are famous, a lot of them didn't come from great upbringing. It was that drive to be successful. It was the, you know, back against the wall. Yeah. Now I don't view ourselves in that sort of situation. I feel like we were fortunate to have a college education and to be supported and to do those sort of things. But I was the number one rep in the country at Brinks, and I made sixty two thousand dollars, you know with a mortgage and just trying to make it
1: when you joined Mongo, and maybe I'll give the background for the audience, you went to solar winds and spent seven years there. then you went to MongoDB and you spent a little over four years there mm-hmm. Was it even a year into your shift at Mongo? they went public? It was two months, two months mm-hmm. and it was a huge. It was big, wasn't it? Like the public offering was legit. It was. Yeah,
0: it was legit. I think they had about 115 million ARR at the time when they went public.
1: Mm -hmm. Then most recently you joined as the chief revenue officer at Starburst. This was in, how long ago was that? About 14 months ago. 14 months ago. Mm -hmm. One of the thoughts that I had was that in... Your run at SolarWinds and your run at Mongo, you kept kind of climbing the ladder. The line of thinking that I had that I wanted to ask you is you were kind of a homegrown talent at those places where you learned the system, you rose the ranks through the system, you were a product of the system. Now, you don't rise through the ranks. You come in and you're an executive. At a pretty high flying company, $3 billion valuation, it's got all the fancy investors, it's in the right space, all these things. Does it feel different to you? Yeah, it's a
0: good question. I mean, obviously, in title and responsibility, it's different.
1: Yeah. But you had a big job at Mongo, SVP of worldwide sales before you left.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my team is double now. And, yeah. and you know, reporting to the CEO, it's different than yeah. reporting to the CRO. But I think that I was a product of the systems, but I also feel like in my experiences, I've always kind of felt like I needed to change the way that things were doing, bring new ideas, break the traditional mold. Sometimes that's a tough situation to be in because you're doing things. People think you're doing things for your own personal good or your reputation when you're actually trying to do things in a more efficient, more productive manner for the company. The learnings from those situations was that you take in your surroundings, you try to understand how things are being done, and then you try to figure out new ways to do things. That's what I feel like I've done over the past decade plus. So at Starburst, it's a very similar thing. It's, you know, there was obviously sellers before me. There were sales leaders before me. There was deals being done. There's deals that we need to now do moving forward. It's very similar. It's how do we get more productive, more efficient, more effective? And although you know I have revenue in my title, you know, revenue means everything from top of funnel, working with marketing, to product feedback, to how the sales engine works, to customer success. We call it CVS, but how all that works together is what I feel like I spend a lot of my mind share on. Mm -hmm. When you joined,
1: was it bootstrapped? Wasn't the company bootstrapped for a while? It was, yeah. I was with the CRO of Procore, Mm -hmm. I think last week, maybe two weeks ago, and they were essentially bootstrapped. I mean, they didn't, Really, get a real round of funding until 10 years in. There was a, I hate to use the word, but a grittiness that comes from that feeling. The feeling of your back is against the wall, like that desperation where you have to be very judicious about everything. I'm wondering, do you feel that difference when you join the DNA, the culture of the team, when it comes from a place not of excess, but of frugality? Does the company feel different? Yeah.
0: Let me, yeah. If does that could, make sense? Yeah, it does 100%. I can give you a, actually a quick story. For <laughs> anybody that's not familiar with SolarWinds, SolarWinds was an untraditional model in very traditional times. They built a company that was essentially all inbound product marketing and sales. The product just works. You find buyers in pain and you use digital assets to move them down funnel before sales ever gets engaged. use a great product to engage customers. And then use sales to finalize the deal and to expand the deal, Your perpetual license. But you could say it was almost product led before product led was a thing. And so really what that meant was that it was an engine that had to work all together. And so my software career grew up in that, but the company was extremely efficient. I had sellers that were booking a million dollars a quarter from, you know, Austin, Texas making fifty-fifty comp plans, you know, at that time was extremely productive and efficient. As we grew as a company and as we became more successful, we had to figure out new ways to extrapolate productivity. I mean, we had it down to the point to where we knew how much each lead from each product cost us and how much it took to get that opportunity to close to one. So if we wanted five sales for application performance monitoring, we knew it cost Mm $83,000, right, for example. And so I think growing up in that mindset, in that environment, and then when we went private by Tomo Bravo and Silver Lake, I'll never forget, Tomo Bravo pulled us into a room and they were talking about why they bought the company. And they said, SolarWinds is the most, has the best EBITDA of any company that we've ever acquired. You know, think about that, of all the companies that are in their portfolio at the time, so, extremely, extremely efficient. So, I go from that to Mongo, which was high growth, massive, massive market opportunity. How do we pour fuel on the fire sort of situation? And so, I feel like I got both sides of how to build companies, you know, like a company that was extremely efficient, a company that was cash flow positive to Mongo, which was we're using all of our investments to capture market, right? And I think there's two schools of thoughts there. And so when I come to Starburst, the company has its own culture. It's we're going to use meritocracy. We're going to, you know, up withhold character. We're a bootstrap company. We're a workhorse culture, not a unicorn culture. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you adapt to the culture and you evolve within the culture. And then you start to think about how do you get productive? And again, just using those past two experiences, how do you get the engine flowing? How do you get the engine going? Which is product marketing, sales, engine putting out features, using partners to, to drive growth, those sort of things.
1: Before I forget, can you give the 30 seconds on like what the hell does Starburst do? If you wanna say the pitch that marketing gave you, feel free, <laughs> if you wanna say how a customer uses it, feel free.
0: Definitely. So Starburst is a MPP query engine and what that means is it allows people to query data performantly on a data lake or federate data across multiple data sources. So, people use us rather than moving data into a single data source like a cloud data warehouse or a large data lake. People use us to query the data at the source, or if they have a data lake, they can turn their data lake into a lake house. Mm -hmm. So, what that means for the audience is you can decrease your time to insight because you no longer have to move data or ETL data. You can reduce your risk within your business because you can use our technology to query logs. Uh, If you're a security company, You can catch anti-money laundering use cases. And you can also think about potentially commoditizing storage. So you can put your data where it's the most convenient and then use our query engine to access that data.
1: When you were interviewing with your CEO, Justin, he had a funny reflection, which is not too dissimilar from when we talked. He realized that he was being interviewed. (laughs) (laughs) All of a sudden the tables got turned. I'm curious, what were the things that you were asking him, Mm -hmm. as specific as you can be, besides the obvious growth rates, revenue, company values, what were the key things that you were really set on figuring out?
0: Yeah. I think for a startup, and you know, this being in venture capital, so much of the success of some of these companies is based on the founder and the founder's ability to lead, to hire, to execute their drive. I mean, early days, there's not a lot of things to celebrate. And so do they have that ability to get up out of bed, drive the business, be asked by sales for 10 different things and still have the, uh, the ambition and the professionalism to navigate that as they build a company? I saw that at SolarWinds with Kevin Thompson. I saw that at, at certainly saw that at Mongo with David Acharya, one of the best CEOs in tech. And so with Justin, I was assessing does he have that energy? Does he have the ambition? Does he aspire to turn this thing into something? Or when it gets difficult, is he going to close the doors and try to sell it for parts? For me, I was initially trying to un- understand is this a need to have or a nice to have? you know i wanted to be in data infrastructure that was where i built my career that's where i felt like there was a tremendous opportunity for us for tech sales he had that certainly but you know there's a lot of technologies out there that are you know especially right now in 2023 where companies are worrying about expenses and those sort of things need to have technology continues to be acquired continues to be purchased because companies are trying to become you know they're trying to go through digital transformations they're trying to move to the cloud so on and so forth and so as recession-proof as possible, I was looking for a need to have technology. I was also looking for what is the upside on this company, and not from a money perspective, but from a market opportunity. Are they doing things in an untraditional way, right? If you think about SolarWinds, it was like the anti-traditional model. It was you know products that just work, and you just kind of bolt on different technologies to monitor your entire data center. Mongo was a NoSQL database company that was disrupting a traditional relational database world. I was looking for what Starburst's story was. And they're flipping data warehousing and single source of truth inside out. I love that story from a company perspective. And from a founder perspective, I was looking for those sort of things. I was trying to gauge venture capital interest. I was trying to gauge revenue growth. I was trying to also understand how do they go about making decisions in the company? Is it the best decision wins or is it Justin's decision that wins? How do you figure that out? I forgot what the question was that I asked him. The way he answered it was, I don't try to find my decision. I try to find the right decision. I've told him that since that time, since I've been in the company, that was the answer that won me over early on. Because what I'd seen in my past is sometimes the louder person or the person that uses data to arm themselves for their own personal good or the person that is the most outspoken about something is sometimes the person that quote unquote wins, right? We're all in the same company, but they're the person that the decision starts to flow towards where he was trying to just understand the truth. He was really trying to understand what is the right thing to do. You know, when you distill it all down, what are we trying to solve for?
1: The way that your resume reads is these incredible rides, right? SolarWinds is just a great product market fit. MongoDB, one of the defining technology companies of our generation. Starburst, couldn't be hotter. All these things, they read great. They read fine in your resume. A lot of people are going to be listening, thinking like, how do I do that? When you're doing those rides... Does it feel how people expect it to feel the way that I just described it? Does it feel that way when you're in it? No, (laughs) there's a lot of revisionist
0: history. I think when it comes down to reading back your resume, you know, like company after company, especially at, I mean, at Mongo, you had people that went PTC, Blade Logic, BMC, Apti, Mongo. It's just like, wow, like one after another, Uh you know? And when you start to really dissect that, like the decision-making, it's a lot of following great talent. It's a lot of following good people intuition, but I think, you know, that that example I just gave you about that certain trajectory, that wasn't me. I mean, like we were talking about earlier, Austin's known for being a tech hub, but it's not like a Silicon Valley or a New York or a Boston type of tech hub. It's it's different. I mean, people build kind of an extension of their company in the city. I can't honestly sit here and tell you that I was extremely intentional with every career decision. I feel like I was walked into a company that gave me the opportunity to succeed, to make money, to become a leader. They continued to give me career opportunities, equity. I actually didn't want to see it end at SolarWinds, believe it or not. Things happen for a reason. And then I joined Mongo by chance. I ran into the VP of Worldwide Sales at a workout and uh, took on the role and just tried to sell software and career can continue to grow, but I don't feel like I've ever been extremely intentional. And I know that sounds kind of maybe weird to people uh, because I think people are, I actually talked to SDRs that are, I want to be an SDR and then I want to be an AE and then I want to be a leader and then I want to be a VP and I want to be a CRO. I'm like, wow, you have it all figured out. Yeah. I did not have that. It was just personally trying to support my family. I was trying to succeed. I was, I'm was i super competitive. So I was trying to win for the company, for myself, for my team. And yeah, I mean, I can't say it was all on purpose.
1: The competitive winning thing, like winning is an expectation, but I also have a feeling that it doesn't feel that good to you. Is that fair?
0: Yeah. It's a short-term feeling.
1: How short? Maybe a night. <laughs> like you hit your year, you get a paycheck, you get a promotion.
0: To me, it's not promotions or pay. It's, it's like the success of a team. It's success of a person. It's success of the company. Yeah. I do like to hit our numbers of course, but I think it's just a general feeling of people succeeding as again, my career and responsibilities get bigger. Then that means that I'm responsible for that. So then My success is ultimately dictated in how I get people to be successful on their own. And when that happens, I'm extremely happy for them. I'm extremely happy for the company. But I don't think I do a good job of celebrating it myself.
1: Doesn't that suck? (laughs) Like, it feels to me that everybody that I talk to experiences it the same way, which is that it's ephemeral. It comes and goes. And you move on and it also feels to me that part of it is that you it has to feel that way. I don't know I there's very few people that I've met in the chair across from me that are able to celebrate and appreciate every little win and still have the drive to keep pushing like do those things have to be mutually independent?
0: what celebrating small things and then a big thing?
1: I'll put it another way. I heard a quote recently that said, if you can't enjoy the climb, you won't enjoy the peak. And that sounds so good to me. But how I relate to that is there's no way I'm getting to the peak if I'm enjoying the climb. That's how I think about it, which is that it's almost like this complacency. If I'm celebrating all these little things, that's what I meant by it.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. I, I completely get it. I enjoy the climb much more than the peak. I enjoy the grind. I enjoy the journey. I enjoy figuring out challenges and figuring things out. I don't know if there ever is a peak, to be honest with you. Like, you know, you look at my career and you even kind of see what Mongo's still doing. They're still rising. I think they're far from the peak. I think they they still have a huge opportunity. I think Starburst is just beginning. I think we have a tremendous upside and tremendous potential in our company in a different way. There's so much opportunity, but we're climbing right now. We're grinding. And that's the fun part. When I've made career moves in the past, it has been because I felt like I wasn't, in that grind the challenge of figuring things out anymore. You know, I felt like it was more scale. It was managing things. And, you know, I think I think for me, going back to earlier what I said, I haven't been extremely intentional with my career moves, but I think now that I'm reflecting, I think because I enjoy the grind so much, it's the earlier stage companies that I feel like Solar Ones was a public company, but it was still small. It's figuring out challenges and problems along the way.
1: As you're problem solving with people, does your poker face get in the way of folks feeling like you're really in it with them? Yeah, 100%. Is that a problem for you?
0: I think, yeah, that combined with not communicating validation or displeasure. I think it's
1: a... a, Like they don't even think you're actually feeling the grind.
0: I don't know if it's that. I think it's like a, I don't know if he's doing it for himself. It's like a lack of trust, I would say, Mm -hmm. you know? When it's actually the opposite, like I am so invested Mm. to like helping you and the team and the company win that I'm just, I'm so locked in that I'm thinking about things. And I kind of joke with my direct reports that time has proven that once you work with me for at least two years, you start to understand that I have my best intentions at all times and I'm extremely genuine. And I guess that's my common misconception is that people can't read me or, or, or feel like they potentially can't trust me when all I'm doing is just trying to figure out the problems and I'm processing and I'm and so I think I need to be intentional with how I communicate these things how I talk through these things and certainly an area that I continue to work on
1: this is a random question but do you have wi-fi in your car
0: I do in our SUV we do yeah why well initially if I'm being honest we got it because so my mother-in-law my wife could browse the internet. When uh-huh. we went down to the when we went down to the coast. It's conveniently now an <laughs> an opportunity for me to work in the car.
1: Yeah. Uh huh. I've heard about this drive that you do from your home to your wife's parents' house to El Paso. As yeah. a far drive, there's myths that I hear about you. <laughs> Just hammering the Wi-Fi, taking calls. And you're like, oh, no, no, this is going to be a quick one. Yeah, yeah. Six hours later, you're still on the phone.
0: I know after, uh, you know, after Fredericksburg to I-10, there's a huge drop off in Wi-Fi there. There's no service. I know once you get to Fort Stockton, it gets a little bit stronger.
1: I almost spit out my water.
0: (laughs) Is it weird that I plan my calls on my road trips?
1: No, not at all. I would go crazy. I would go, my team schedules, they know when I'm driving and that's when I have calls. 30 minutes, hour drive. If I'm going from San Francisco to Menlo, I'm on a call. Passes the time. It's the most efficient way to use the time. Yeah, it is. Now I don't have three kids and a wife in the car. (laughs) They're doing their own
0: thing. They're, They're doing their own thing. It used to be a not so great thing because when I was coming home, I'd make work phone calls. And I'd get home and then I'd try to shut
1: off and it would just... There's no decompressing time before you get home.
0: Yeah. And yeah, it was like, it it never ended, right? It was like, all right, I'm on my way home, make a work phone call. I get home, then I'm checking email again. It just kept going throughout the night. What we realized was that I needed some sort of break, like just a mental break of, you know, try not to make a phone call on the way home. And I try to use, I think in the early days, it was use my drive home as my music or quiet time to decompress from the day. I think nowadays, because the kids are little, I make work phone calls on the way home. And then when I get home, it's like phone goes into the bedroom, stay away from it, decompress with the kids. And then I check the phone later.
1: One thing that has surprised me is I thought going into this, not just this conversation, but all the conversations that I have on the show that all of these successful people, would have broken marriages, broken relationships, divorces, et cetera, et cetera. That has turned out to be the exception. Most of the time I get the opportunity to talk to significant others. And I most of the time I think, God, what a great relationship. That's awesome. Like, what a great marriage. What a great support system. That surprised me. I actually don't have a question, but it just surprised me. And I felt the same way about you, and um, I didn't expect that. Why not? I guess probably because I thought that the sacrifice comes at a cost, a personal cost. Yeah, it definitely does. I think the first I'll say is
0: I couldn't be as successful as I am without my wife. She put me into a position mentally, pushed me to a place where she pulled the best out of me, I would say, along the way. And I think you may have run across that with a lot of people that you've interviewed is that they have great partners in life that are helping to be their counselor, their therapist, their backbone on certain situations because there are ups and downs in your career and in your life, and you need someone to work through that with. So I think that's probably a big part of it. I think for me, making these decisions all along the way you know, has needed somebody to help me out. You know, I always joke with my HRBEP, that I have my own HRBP at home to work through things.
1: You talk about work at home?
0: Not as often as I should.
1: You think you should talk about work more at home?
0: Yeah. You do? Yeah, because I don't, I hold things in more than I should. My wife knows when my mind's elsewhere, you know? And I think there's probably, it's yeah. fucking eyes are racing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> there's probably times where I should be like, all right, this is bothering me. This person did this, or, you know, I'm trying to figure out this situation right now. So I give a little bit of insight and transparency into what I'm thinking. And I think that's kind of the theme with just dealing with me, I guess.
1: If you're anything like me, which you are, it's all over our face when the movie's playing. When someone's talking to me that knows me, or in your case, if you don't even know me that well, when we're sitting down, it's so obvious they can just see it on you. Yeah. And sometimes releasing the pressure valve helps you become more present again. It slows the movie down. Totally. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because we're just processing so much that unconsciously we're not talking or thinking about or expressing the things that we're thinking. Right. And so then our body goes into this normal state and people are like, Jubin, why are you looking that way? You know, why are you looking like that? But I'm still trying to figure out ways to improve. I've certainly haven't mastered anything and i still feel like there's opportunities for me to grow as a person, as a leader, as a husband, Father,
1: I want to revisit the interview thing that you do. And fascinated by it. You strike me as a world-class interviewer. I actually think you're very intentional about interviewing. I think most people are not. My old boss used to, <laughs> Jeff, if you're listening, you'll get a laugh out of it. But he used to, when he would do an interview, he would sit back in his chair and almost just completely relax. And what he was looking for was to see if the candidate mirrored yeah. what he was doing He didn't want that, by the way, just to be clear. He wanted them engaged. He wanted them on the tip of their toes, but he just wanted to see, I can't really put my finger on why he would do it, but anyway, I I think.
0: Yeah, my college professor used to say that watch out for interviewers that cuss because they're waiting for you to curse, Uh, use curse words, and that shows them that you are willing to go below the line.
1: Huh. You do anything like that? Like
0: challenge them? Yeah, put them into a situation. Yeah, I actually do. Um, <laughs> it's not always in the first interview. First interview, if it's my candidate, my direct candidate, you know, first is me answering questions, them asking me questions, getting that person bought in on me and the company and me hopefully setting the hook on what we're about. Second interview is really kind of where we start to really dig in. And typically about 60 to 70% of the way in I ask, is there anything that you would have answered differently? And it typically puts people on their heels a little bit. Again, that's kind of like the untraditional breaking the rhythm of the interview sort of thing that I do. And the reason I ask that is because I think very hyper-aware, self-conscious people, not self-conscious, self-aware people,
1: they go, like, oh, man, I answer- I asked that. They're already stewing on an answer. Yeah,
0: they're already, you know, and I think that the way that that portrays, and I think that's my, you know, one of my recruitment philosophies are, is little things in interviews are actually bigger things in production when they're hired. Because I heard this told to me once, you know, the interview, an interview is the best version of someone that you'll ever get, right? They're trying to impress you. They're bringing their best foot forward. They're answering things on point. Six months later, the shininess wears off. Things are tough.
1: Like dealing, relationship
0: they're, yeah they're dealing with the challenge how are they going to handle that right and so you know i'm trying to figure out like are they going to tell a story that it's everything around them and not themselves or are they thinking about how can i change the trajectory of the situation that i'm in and so i think i just generally try to ask questions that frame that you know they there's a saying a problem well stated is half solved and so i kind of view the same thing with interview questions like if you can answer a really great question at the right time, you can get somebody to go, huh. And then in the moment, it's a raw reaction. It's a raw, here's what I think, or this is what I'm about, or this is what I did in the past. It's not scripted. It's raw because I think that's the version of someone that you're going to get in the role.
1: You want to deconstruct the performative aspects of, a, of an interview.
0: Yeah. Take off the performance pieces. Like, let's see who you are. And I think because that's who you're hiring,
1: right? Can you explain that quote that you just gave? The A good answer. So what was it? A problem well stated is half solved. What does that mean? It means that
0: sometimes if you ask the right question and you frame it appropriately, you get somebody kind of half the way there, right? So I think the way that it it portrays, sometimes we're in executive meetings and we're say, you know, we're, we're debating about certain things and then just kind of a pause. And then maybe the question is, are we trying to solve this or are we trying to solve this? And in the moment that's half the answer is that we're talking about a bunch of different things. Yeah. Just framing it, just framing it. Yeah. Framing it in the right way to get the answer that you want. Do you teach people how to interview? I do. I think what I've learned, especially when I've gotten, as I've gotten into leadership, that some of what I do is intuitive or a lot of what I do is intuitive. And so like, how do I turn that into a science for people? That's primarily what I focus on. And what I try to focus on the most is there's no one data point typically that overrides them all, right? If you have a first interview, you have back channels, you have second interview, you have, we do a PXT assessment, which is a, you know, intelligence and personality test, you have peer peer interviews. And so like you end up accumulating seven or eight different data points. And I kind of view it as like a spider chart. Maybe the back channel was a five, but they met with your CEO and it's an eight. The PXT says it's a seven. And so you just try to point, put all those together and so I think more teaching that along with many other methodologies is something that I try to focus on.
1: Last one, one of the company values for Starburst is grit, right? Did I make that up?
0: It's within character, but okay. yeah, we have character, competence, and ownership.
1: Okay. So I made it up. Well, nonetheless, within character, how do you screen for it?
0: Within character or for grit in particular?
1: I'm more interested in grit considering I made it up. I'm more interested. <laughs> I'm more interested in grit.
0: Yeah. What I'm really looking for is what is the most difficult feedback? You know, here's another interview question that I, I mentioned earlier, but what is the most difficult feedback that you've ever received and how did it change you? And what I'm looking for is something that hit someone right between the eyes. They were told something that either they didn't know existed or that they knew existed and they didn't want to believe and they got through it. Right. That's one data point. Another one is talking through, how they make career decisions. Walk me through how you've typically made career decisions. Is there a theme into why you've transitioned different companies? I typically have people walk me through from the day after they graduated college to where they're at today, no matter how experienced they are. And I get to hear how they've made different career decisions, whether they're following a leader or things got difficult and they left or they had a great career run because of X, Y, Z. I don't think there's one particular data point to test for grit, but I think it's those multiple data points that end up telling me, okay, this person is ambitious. They've dealt with some hard times. They brought ideas to the table that maybe they weren't heard themselves and they've continued to push and drive on. They've shown the ability to be
1: resilient. You would be a great podcast host. I gotta be honest. (laughs) You would be a great podcast host. I appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Believe it or not, it's an hour and a half, which is crazy to think about. Let's keep going. I could go for hours. I mean, this is basically what we talk about, except we have a microphone in front of our face. Yeah, yeah, I always conclude the same way. The first, and God, maybe I should change this question up given what's going on, but are you hiring? We are. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're <laughs> yeah, kind of like tiptoes when I asked no, that I question know. I, I get nice.
0: it. No, we're at this point, and for people that may be listening to this in 2024, there's a lot of macro headwinds that are affecting technology companies these days. We're certainly affected by that, but we are still hiring.
1: Any key roles?
0: Key roles, I would say solutions architects, technical account managers. We are hiring a couple more AEs. Yeah, across the board, I would say.
1: All right, fair enough. Last one, what does grit mean to you?
0: Grit to me means having the mental fortitude to push through. My daughter, you know, she's in pre-K and they taught her the word resilience which, why, they, why they're teaching them that, I, I'm not quite sure. But she says it all the time. You know, I'm talking to her. Your daughter? My daughter. She's four years old. She's smart as a whip. And so, at a high level, I think grit is about mental fortitude. But there's also there's also resilience that's built into that. And, you know, resilience and tough times and being able to push through, I think, is, is a key component of grit.
1: Javier Molina, thank you.
0: Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.
1: That's it, thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time.